0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, So glad to see each and every one of you today. Nice to have the snow gone, the sun shining. And uh, we see some glimmers of hope that there actually is good weather, uh, even though this year has been uh, actually quite refreshing uh, for many of us. So good to see everybody this morning. Today we're going to continue our series in parables. We've been looking uh, over the last four, five, six weeks at parables in chapter uh, 13 of the book of Matthew. We see that during this chapter, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's been teaching uh, about the kingdom of God. And in many ways, he has been illustrating what the kingdom of God is like. If you remember, uh, a few weeks back, we looked at The fact that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God being like a sower that went out to sow, casting seed uh, upon uh, differing soils. We saw that there was uh, a man who sowed good seeds uh, in a field, and also uh, an enemy who came in and sowed uh, some weeds amongst that same field, continuing to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven was like. We saw last week about the kingdom of heaven being compared to uh, a merchant in search of fine pearls, like a hidden treasure uh, being found in a field. Jesus, taking situations and people in everyday life, is teaching his disciples and all those who are hearing, all those who have ears to hear, What the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is like. And so today we turn to Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, another short parable. We're going to see more, concluding in this chapter, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 13, 47 through 50 I invite you to turn there. If you have a Bible, please follow along with me. If you don't, we'd love to give you one. We have some in the back. You just let one of us know at the end. We'll make sure to put one in your hand. Otherwise, for now, we'll have uh, the Scripture up on the screen. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. This is what Jesus says. He says, again, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be. At the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This indeed is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. During this time when Jesus was teaching on earth, the fishing industry was primary. I mean, just like we would know that it was an agri- uh, agrarian culture, a lot of farming, There was also people that farmed the sea. They were fishermen. You can imagine the kind of uh, ways in which people would go about catching fish. One of them, they would simply just have a hook, and they would have it at the end of a line, and they cast it into the sea, and they pull it to shore. This is uh, the angling method of fishing. This is typically what we do today. Raise your hand if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman. Thank you very much. There's a couple out there. I am not one. However, Silas, my son, is one, or at least a budding fisherman and this is the method that he likes to use in fact he's gone to great lengths too over his birthdays and christmas and in conversations with his grandfather uh, get quite a lure collection he loves lures he's got his little box and his little strap and he and his grandfather spend time together trading lures how many of you do that not many people silas loves to do that because he thinks he's an angler right He's going to put this lure on a fishing pole, he's going to put it into the pond, and he's going to get a bass, largemouth, smallmouth, he doesn't care, maybe even a walleye. That was one of the methods used. Another method that was used was the casting of a net, typically a small net, right? You get the idea that on the edge of the shore, or maybe standing knee-high into the water, the fisherman would take the net and cast it into the water, and then pull the rope, dragging uh, what he could, hopefully, Uh, Fish suitable to eat, to sell, whatever. That was another method. But as I took a look at this parable, there was another method of fishing that I found to be very interesting. It's called the dragnet method. It was interesting, right? So these nets, you could imagine, uh, could get large, and they could get long, and they could get wide. And you could imagine, being a businessman, that you wouldn't want to waste your time just pulling in one at a time, that you would want to bring in a massive amount of fish. You'd want to be as efficient as possible. And so here's what they did. They would tie weights at the bottom of the net all along the shore, thus anchoring the net to the shore. And then they would tie flotation devices at the top of the net, okay? So imagine uh, anchored uh, weights that anchor the net along the shore in differing lengths, and then flotation devices at the top of the net. And then imagine it being so big and so long that a couple people really couldn't do it. What you really needed was a couple of boats on each side, rowing on each side out into the sea, dragging the net without pulling it from the shore. So they would row out two boats side by side on each side of the net, And when they got out as far as they could, they allowed that net to sink in. Sink down deep into the the depths of the waters. And then when the time was right, when they thought that they had maybe got a good uh, 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 catch, they would begin to do what? Row back. So you can imagine them rowing out, letting it sink, and then rowing back. And as they rowed back, they would drag their catch from the sea, trapping many things, many fish, different sizes, different flavors, and a bunch of other things for sure, to the shore. And as they got to the shore, the fishermen would get out of the boat and then joined by maybe some other people, some other employees, people working. They would pull that catch onto the shore, onto the beach, and they'd see what they got. And you could imagine what they would find. They would find fish of all kinds. Small fish, large fish, right? Fish that suitable for the marketplace. Fish that possibly were dead or damaged or mangled. And you can imagine maybe even picking up some debris, right? Maybe uh, 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 pieces of a sunken ship. Or maybe in our world... Uh, we see often, at least at the pond when we fish, weeds. Right? We we have a saying for that. I won't I won't share that with you now. But basically, when you get weeds, it's not good. But you can imagine them pulling in a lot of weeds and plants. Maybe maybe some of you've been fishing before and you've gotten your line caught on on something like a tire, or maybe you've caught a boot. Or something like that, and you've pulled it to shore. So they would bring all these things in, and then they would begin to sit down, and they would sort through this. They would sort through their catch. What they would do is they would find all the, the damaged, dead, useless, unsound things, and they would remove it from the catch and cast it to the side. It was of no value to them. It was worthless. It was not useful to their purposes. And at the same time, they would take that which was good, that which was uh, uh, edible, that which was sellable in the marketplace, and they would put them into containers so that they could transport them to that place. Interesting process, nonetheless. You can imagine it being an arduous one, and yet one that could potentially bring great prosperity to the one who did it. What's interesting is Jesus looks at this particular method and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. If you're wondering what the kingdom of God is like, and even if you're not wondering, I'm going to tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like that. Jesus is beginning to teach about the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea. It gathered fish of every kind, and when it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so the question becomes, if Jesus looks at this method of fishing and says the kingdom of heaven is like that, how is it so? And then Jesus transitions quite quickly and says this, So it will be at the end of the age. He's giving a promise to those who are hearing. So it will be according to my word, according to my foreknowledge, according to my sovereign understanding of history. This is how it's going to be. This is what will happen at the end of the age. And what he's doing in that moment is he's giving us a promise and yet a, almost a prophecy, a prediction based on his understanding of what we can expect the state of the kingdom of heaven, the state of the kingdom of God, to be like at the end of the age. If you look back a couple parables, you would have maybe remembered similar language. The parable of the wheat and the tares. Right, where the wheat—I'm uh, sorry—the wheat was growing, and at the very same time, the weeds were growing, right? And and they were allowed to grow under the under the watch care of the farmer. They were both allowed to grow, and yet, in some ways, giving us, helping us see what the kingdom of God is like in the here and now. But yet, the parable goes on to talk about harvest. And what does Jesus say when he talks about the harvest, even in that parable? So it will be at the what? End of the age. And he talks about the harvesters coming and separating out the wheat and the weeds. And he uses this similar language in this parable. But the emphasis in this parable is not what the kingdom of heaven is like now but what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the state of it will be at the end of the age. That's what this process, this way of fishing, is illustrating for the people. And what he's saying is, like the men who sat down and sorted the good from the bad, so will the angels come and separate The evil from the righteous. What he's saying is, just as the bad fish were thrown away, in the end, those who are found evil in the eyes of God will suffer inescapable, eternal punishment for being that. What Jesus is saying is, who we are in the end determines where we will be in the end. He's dividing the world in half once again. He's saying that at the end of the age there will be two kinds of people. Those who are evil in my eyes and those who are righteous in my eyes. And there will be two different places Where these people will spend eternity. There will be a place of bliss with me. In my presence. Enjoying my love and fellowship. And there will be another place. Of misery, of torment. Of eternal conscious punishment. On the basis of their evil and their sinful deeds. Two different people. That will spend eternity in two different places. Who we are in the end determines where we will be in the end. And it's in this moment we all feel what I've been feeling as I've been wrestling with this text all week. We feel the horror of that. We feel the heaviness of this truth. We come face to face with the truth that although it may not seem like it now, although we may be living in a time where the wheat and the weeds are growing together, where the wicked prosper Although it may not seem like God is judging the wicked, we understand this in this passage, that in the end, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. We will all face the judgment of God. That's what that language is. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. This separation is a decisive act of judgment on all humankind. A separation of the evil and the righteous. Just like Matthew 25, a separation of the sheep and the goats. Same language in Matthew 25. This is what God will do. He will make a fully informed decision because He is, knows everything about us. He knows who we are. He knows what we have done. He, his vision pierces to the deepest part of who we are in all of his righteousness and holiness. And he will make a perfect, fully informed decision about the nature of who we are in the end. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God will judge. He will make a decision fully informed. And that decision will determine where every person spends all eternity. I think today, We are not all that comfortable about judgment, are we? We all go to Planet Fitness. Well, we don't, but we've heard of this. The bagels are free on Tuesday. The pizza is free on Wednesday. And you're not allowed to judge people. Let me tell you what I need at the gym. I need judgment. (laughs) I need someone to look at me and say, Dude, hit the treadmill. Hit the weights. You're a slob. That's what I need at the gym. I don't need someone handing me pizza. Just a sidebar. We're not comfortable with judgment. We actually think of our view of God and we say, you know, if God really loved us, he would never do this. Because our understanding of God is based on that. We make an estimation about what God would be like on based on our own understanding, we make an estimation about what righteousness is and who will be declared righteous by God. Right? We, we come up with our own sense of judgment. In many ways, we're uncomfortable with the concept altogether. Right? We've heard it time and time again. Don't judge me. Right? But the truth is, is that judgment, as Klein Snodgrass says, is is central to the Christian message. That as despised of a doctrine that it is, the righteous, holy judgment of God is central to our gospel and our message. It's central to understanding who God is, what He does. And it is also central for us to have any background, any understanding... Of salvation at all we we need to know the reality of judgment in the in the predicament of human sin if we're ever going to preach the remedy and you get my point but in this moment we see that's what it is we may estimate who is righteous and who is holy based on our own understanding i thought of of a situation this week where bob argyle and i were downstairs as bob and ryan and some others have been kind of redoing the youth room you can clap We were saying, how, how many square foot is this place? We pull out a measuring tape, and we're walking around. We're kind of estimating doing one of these, and we're coming up with a guess, really, of how much square footage there is, a, a human estimation. The truth is, Bob, we have absolutely no idea how big that room is, do we? And then a couple hours later, I was meeting with Matt Unright, and uh, an expert, in, so it's kind of helping us with some sound and audio and making this room uh, really serve us well in terms of sound and what we see on the screen. We're going to hang the speakers so we don't have children tripping on the, on the bases of them and the poles, so that's, we're excited about that. But anyway, he's got to measure the room. And all of a sudden, I'm like, dude, what's with the red dot on the wall? Right, out of his pocket, he pulls out this tool, and he's doing one of these. He's he's po- he, he's got this like yellow and black thing in his hand, and he's doing this, and then he's writing it down. Then he's going this way, and then he's going this way, and then he's going that way. He's got this red dot all over the room. I'm like, what what's going on? I'm like, can I play with that a little bit? Maybe I can get your forehead. <laughs> yes, I did do that in high school, you know, during chapel, guys preaching. We got the red dot on his forehead laughing. It was sick. Christians, Christian school, I mean, forgive us. Anyway, this is a laser measurement tool. Exact measurement. The length, the height, the width, the breadth, the whole bit. This is no estimation. This is an exact measurement. And began to think about, isn't this how we measure ourselves morally before God? We make an estimation. Usually, we look at somebody else and we say, well, we're not that bad. Or we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, well, at least 51% of the time, we're doing pretty good. And we live in the assumption that when we stand before God someday, the 51% of the time is going to cut it. But when God looks at us, he doesn't measure us on the basis of relative righteousness with other people. Well, He's not as, Jim's not as bad as Rick. So we'll take Jim. No, he comes to judge and make a decision on the basis of who he is. Because in order to be received by him, and to spend eternity with him in heaven, you have to have his righteousness. God's not attracted to his opposite. God can have no fellowship with the unrighteous. When God looks at us, he needs to see his righteousness in us. And the fact of the matter is, is that apart from him, no matter how many times God measures, guess what? He sees the same result. Psalm 14 says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Romans 3:23 says what? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we see the righteousness and the holiness of God and we see his glory on display as he brings that to bear in his end-time decision about who we are, that will be the thing that we are measured against. His righteousness, his holiness. It reveals a profound need for us as people. We should be like the Philippian jailer in the presence of Paul and Silas that says, as we hear these words, this truth about the judgment of God, who will separate the evil from the righteous, and based on that decision, based on who we are, that determines where we will be in the end. Based on that decision, we go, whoa! This is a woe moment. This should awaken in us a, what can I do to be saved? As the people in Acts 2 hear this message, the the Jesus that you killed, God has made him the king. They say, brothers, what shall we do? Because they see their predicament. They come face to face with the reality that they are not righteous before God, and therefore they would suffer apart from him, Eternal conscious punishment. They will weep. Their teeth will gnash in eternal torment. When we hear the words, who we are in the end, determines where we will be in the end. And we see that God's judgment is imminent and coming upon all of humanity. We must all stand before the judgment of Christ. Guess what? That awakens in us. Such tension in soul. We desire escape. How can we escape such wrath, such righteousness? Is there any hope for us? And the wonder of the gospel is this there is. You see, the time has not come. Someone say amen to that. The time has not come. The net is not full yet. This is how it's going to be in the end. But we have not come to the end yet. It's not over. The fat lady is not singing. There's time. And not only is there time, there is provision. You see, we need righteousness. And here's the wonderful truth of the gospel. God has provided righteousness for us. He doesn't just give us a list of rules. If we just try harder and do better, then maybe God will accept us. No, there's no unrighteous. No, not one. But he has gone to great lengths. Great, no greater length could he have gone to to provide the righteousness that we need in the end to be saved from his wrath and to be received into his kingdom forever. We do not have to spend eternity in weep- with weeping and with anguish of teeth. We do not need to do that. How do we know? We know that the gospel teaches very powerfully that Christ has done all that is necessary to provide his righteousness to us you see you feel that well if, if righteous people are received and the unrighteous are rejected then i need righteousness i need that and what you really need is jesus and i want you to hear that today you need jesus nothing more nothing less you need jesus to be received by god in the end you need his righteousness first peter three eighteen says this Write it down. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for all. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. That's the gospel. The righteous, Jesus, the one who is righteous and will judge on the basis of his righteousness. Guess what? That one is the one who suffered for the unrighteous. He died for you. He did all that was necessary to incur and receive and absorb that very wrath that will be poured out in the end. You need Jesus, the righteous one, who suffered for you who are unrighteous. He did so that that He might bring us to God. You see, God wants to bring us to Himself. Because when we hear the word of His judgment, we may get this image that God just can't wait. He's licking His chops to just ruin us and to get rid of us. The truth is, He does desire to judge sin and to remove all unrighteousness from His kingdom. Please understand that. But oh, how he longs to redeem and to reconcile and to provide his righteousness for his people, for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is what C.S. Lewis refers to as the great exchange. You ask, how did he give us his righteousness? Well, he took upon our unrighteousness. It's called the great exchange, that on the cross... Jesus took on Himself all of our unrighteousness. And when God looked at Him, He said, There's all of the unrighteousness of sinful humanity. And God the Father judged His Son. And His wrath was satisfied. And in that same moment, for those who would receive Him, to those who would would see the glory of that moment, All of Christ's righteousness was transferred and given and applied to them. So that in the end, when God looks at us, he says, there's the righteousness of my son. Could you imagine such wonderful provision, such power, such love? Such grace, scandalous grace, that this God who will judge is the God who received and absorbed all of that judgment in our place for our sin. So that in the end, He can look at us and be just, continue to be righteous, and at the same time as Romans 3.26 says, justify, that is, declare you righteous in a court of divine law you're not guilty because all of that righteousness that was in the person of Jesus has been given and applied and bestowed upon you and so we go back to the question what must I do to be saved you ready Nothing. (laughs) If you want hope in the face of the wrath of God, do nothing. Except trust and rely and believe in the one who has done everything on your behalf. To bring you to himself in heaven. This is the hope of the gospel. So we deal with the horror and the heaviness of this passage, but understand all it does is reveal a need and the provision of that need through Christ. The Philippian jailer asked, What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So I say to you, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You will be righteous in the eyes of God, so that in the end, He will look at you and say, Righteous, you are received into my heavenly home that I've prepared for you. But make no mistake about it. If you do not believe, if you refuse to place your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, There is a very different place reserved for you. A place metaphorically called the fiery furnace. A place of weeping. And a place of gnashing of teeth. Eternal conscious punishment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The truth that where, who we are in the end determines where we will be in the end not only reveals our need, I think it also breaks our heart, doesn't it? It's important for the church to wrestle with this truth. Not to avoid it and ignore it, to explain it away, but to wrestle with this truth that God will separate the evil from the righteous, that the state of the kingdom will be pure and perfect, and holy and righteous, a reflection of the one that is making it. You remember Jesus, earlier in this gospel, Matthew, looked upon the crowds. you remember what the text says happened to Jesus when he saw the crowds? He was moved. The seed of his emotions. He had compassion on them. Christ has compassion for a lost world. He has a broken heart for a lost world. He has a broken heart for you who are lost. He says they were sheep without a shepherd, his heart filled with compassion. Do you have that for the world? Is your heart broken for a lost world that is far from God? That may find themselves evil in his eyes in the end? That may find themselves spending all of eternity apart from him in misery? Is your heart broken for the world? We've been living in DeWitt for nine years almost. 2007, we moved there because we were broken for the east side of Syracuse. At least we thought we were. Right? You, you feel like, oh, I'm called, I'm broken. But you're not really broken until you begin to interact with people's lives there, right? You begin to see it. Nine years later, we still are broken for DeWitt. We still love it. There's not one, well, actually, there there may be one gospel proclaiming church in DeWitt. 10,000 people. We drive down Erie Boulevard and countless times have wept. We think about the lostness of that place. There are names, there are relationships, there are people. When you drive through your neighborhood, do you weep? You think about your neighbor, your your family members, your co-workers. Are you broken for them? As the psalmist says, "My, my eyes stream tears. For people do not keep your law. When we see this kind of Truth, and we see this kind of love and grace in a world that is lost and disconnected from it. Are we broken for them? Does our heart not respond to love with love? Right? Heart breaks for a lost world when we interact with this truth. I also think that not only that, but think it opens our mouth. You think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, he's talking about the end judgment, knowing the fear of the Lord, what does he say he does? We persuade others. Some would say, oh, your gospel should never be motivated by judgment and fear. Right? We look back on the days of Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames plays. You remember that. Where it was basically, get a thousand people in a room and scare the crap out of them. You were there. That's actually why you're here. But what motivated those people in that play, I would believe with all my heart, was knowing the fear of the Lord, they persuade others. They want people to know the truth. So they share the gospel. They speak up. Yeah, the the end has not come, the net is not full, but who knows when that will be? And because where or who people are in the end determines where they will be in the end, we're motivated to to be God's mouthpiece in the world. As Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven, we become people who teach about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're proclaimers of the gospel. So when we interact with this truth, it opens our mouth. It reveals our need. It breaks our heart. And if our heart is truly broken, our mouth is open. It's proclaiming. And I can't help but think about the main obstacle that people have, why they don't share their faith. It's most often because they're afraid of rejection. What if I share and they don't like me anymore? What if they think I'm weird? What if they perceive me to be one of those people? What if this means we won't have breakfast anymore? Maybe going to the water cooler won't be as comfortable. It's going to be awkward. Maybe I'll get fired Maybe I'll be rejected if I share my faith. And you're waiting for that perfect moment. What shall I do to be saved? And you're scared to open your mouth. And I find this to be interesting. We should be fear of, uh, afraid of rejection. Write that down. I should be afraid of rejection. But I think it's misplaced. What rejection are you more afraid of? In the lives of people that you know. Are you more afraid that in the end God will reject them? Are you more concerned that today you'll be rejected by them? Wrestle that. Think on that. Am I I more scared to be rejected today by my friends, my family? Than I am scared that they'll be rejected by God in that day. I think this inspires us. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Who is it in your life that needs to hear the grace, the wonder, the substitute, the sacrifice of Jesus, the grace? Who needs to hear the good news, the hope? That we don't need to spend eternity apart from God. That we can begin today to know God, to be reconciled to Him, to have peace, to be forgiven of all of our sins. To be declared righteous because God gave us His righteousness by faith in Jesus. Who needs to hear that? And at the end of the day, we need to embrace this truth. This is why we're here still, as the people of God. as Those who have seen their need and received God's provision, of those who have loved and broken hearts, of those who have, what, known the gospel, are those who speak the gospel. That's why we're here, to love this lost world and to share the gospel, provide hope. I'll never forget 2004, I was 24 years old. Oh no, I was 25. I turned 25 a few minutes before it would seem. I remember preaching at an ecumenical service in the village of Wolcott, New York. The Methodists, the Catholics, everybody was there. We were all there, all the churches in town, ecumenical service. And they asked the new guy in town, I'd just received a I called to be the pastor of First Baptist there. And they asked me to speak. I remember preaching. I remember everyone looking at me like I was crazy. Maybe real or perceived. Well, I am kind of crazy. And I remember at the conclusion, when you're done preaching in these kind of environments, and even now I'm still stuck in that habit, when you're done preaching, you go to the back to greet. Everyone expects to shake your hand on the way out. And I remember standing there during the end, like the benediction and the the choral introit or whatever that thing is that they did. And I remember looking up into the sky because we were outside and looking at the backs and the heads of people that I did not really know. And I remember kind of confused in that moment. And I remember asking God this very simple question. What am I doing here? Really, why am I here? I don't understand. Why did you send me here? And I remember, uh, in whatever way you want to call it, God speaking to me. I'm not saying that. Just I remember this phrase being called to mind. Because there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land, meaning of the word of God. We're here, you're here, Mike, to preach the gospel. You're here to proclaim the message of hope, of salvation, to a world that needs to hear it. You're here to love these people as you do so. And I think about renovation. Why are we here? What are we doing here in North Syracuse? What in the world? And I don't know what the phrase is from, that's called to mind by the Spirit. But I do know this, that we're here because there's a famine in the land of the truth and of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why we come every week to teach and to preach and to celebrate. That's why we gather in missional communities. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we intentionally ask questions: Who in your life does not know God? Because eternity is at stake. Who they are in the end will determine where they will be in the end. That's why we're here, because God has uh, what? This mission to make disciples. Of all nations. We're here because because the time has not come. We're here because the net is not full. We're here to have broken hearts that love the world. We're here to speak the gospel into the lives of every man, woman, and child. Giving them repeated opportunities to hear and respond. Thus to avoid eternal torment and spend eternity with the living God who made them and saved them. That's why we're here. Let's not forget that. Who we are in the end will determine where we will be in the end. Turn to Christ today, deepen your trust. In Him today. May the Spirit break your heart for the world today. And may that not simply be a, I feel bad for them. May it not just be a weeping on the couch while we watch Netflix. May this love motivate action. Sacrifice. Servitude. Interaction investment in this lost world. But may our hearts be broken. May we be motivated by the love of God. And may your mouth be speaking the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Amen. Father, this revelation from your word is heavy. It is scary, and yet, It is real. It is true. This is who you are. This is what Jesus, your son, has said will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, and they will separate the evil from the righteous, and they will throw away the evil into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It may it also be said that you are to be praised and worshipped for such an action. For we look at our world, we see the evil that is in it, we know the sin that is ruining it, we see the death that is pervasive, we even know the power and the, 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 the problem of our own sin before you, and we say, Lord, save us from it, rid us of it. Bring us to a place that is holy and righteous and pure and perfect. And rid us of all this horrible sin that would sever us from you and one another. Restore us, O God. Revive us, O God. Reconcile us to yourself. We pray that you would use us in this community. Give us a love for the world and a boldness joy to give the world the hope of Christ if there's anyone here today that does not know you Lord, has no assurance of where they will be I pray that they trust in Jesus as their righteousness and as they place their faith and trust in you, may you well up within them a joy and an assurance and a peace and a freedom To know that when you see them, you see the righteousness of Christ. That they're forgiven. Give us all that joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing a new song today. Um, We've never done it here. But it just is um, basically an outpouring um, of our acknowledgement, of our thanks for what Jesus has done for us. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds. His hands, His feet My Savior on That cursed tree His body bound And drenched in tears They laid Him down In Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. I'm going to sing the chorus, oh praise the name. Oh praise the name of the